Hello everyone, this is Mirko Guerrini and I welcome you to the Jazz Transcription Clinic, a monthly interviews podcast where we talk with accomplished jazz doctors about their lives, career and their personal secrets on the art of transcribing. If you want to improve at jazz, stay tuned and follow the Jazz Transcription Clinic on the socials for more content. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is being recorded. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and the Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be here today. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Jazz Transcription Clinic podcast. Today our guest doctor in the clinic is the British pianist, composer and transcriptioner Rowan Hudson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks for for being here. It means really a lot because I just shoot an email to Rowan out of the blue. I found his uh, YouTube channel called RH Transcription. He has also a personal uh, YouTube channel with his music. And uh, given the large amount of transcription, which will be, of course, a topic of our conversation, I decided to try to contact him. And he responded very quickly and was enthusiastic of participating in the podcast. So I'm very honored and privileged. Uh, so as I said, uh, Rowan is a pianist and a composer, has just released a new CD uh, as a piano solo CD and all his music and transcriptions are also available on his uh, website. And as usual, all the links will be in the video description and podcast description. So please check him out because it's really worthy. And we will hear of him uh, a lot, I'm pretty sure. And so let's start. Uh, as I said, welcome and thanks for, for being here. Uh, as you know, the podcast is about transcribing and uh, to just have a little chat and I will ask you a few questions on to pick your brain on you know the transcription which you demonstrate to be very good at. Thank you. <laughs> There's not many things I'd, I'd rather sit down and talk about for an hour so it's uh, it's my pleasure to talk about these kind of things as well. Oh I'm, I'm glad I found <laughs> the right topic then. Uh, thank you. So just a little reminder to our listeners to subscribe to the podcast, to subscribe to the uh, YouTube channel. And if you want to comment, I'm always happy to receive comments because they motivate me to keep going. And if you have suggestions, criticism uh, on how to improve uh, the podcast, please feel welcome uh, to shoot any idea to me. So we started with the first question, Ron, what do you think? Let's go. Great. So why do you transcribe? Hmm. That's a, that's, that's a complicated one. Yeah. Um, for lots of reasons, but, but primarily because I like it. 
I, I like the the act of transcribing. You know, it's um, I, I don't completely see it as a as a means to an end. You know, once once you've got the transcription there, there's a lot you can do with it. It's very useful to transcribe for ear training, all these kind of things. Um, but also, I just like it. I, I just like sitting there and and working out the puzzle. You know, yeah. finding out when when there's a bar that you get stuck on and you just can't quite get it and then finally you you find this the the answer you know you, you start to get things right it's um i just like the the act of doing it as much as anything so you you like to go to the park and sit next to a lady that is reading a book and you do a transcription because you you like it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I, i love it i love it i think you are the first one who who gave me that answer. Like, I, I do it because I love it. I, so you like the act of transcribing? Yeah, I think there's something... Uh, it, it depends It depends what I'm transcribing. If I'm transcribing something I really, really like, and a recording that I've listened to a thousand times and I really love, there's, there's almost something sort of... Um, almost archaeological you know it's like this this say bill evans played this thing in 1962 and he went home that night and he went off and lived the rest of his life and this this record is there and it's like going back and finding the the real details of what he played that that one night you know and and exactly how his fingers moved and exactly how his his ideas were flowing um there's something sort of uh in in digging up the past you know digging up that one moment in the past that i find um if it's if it's a recording i love if it's not a recording i love I, yeah yeah <laughs> i couldn't care less but there's something sort of um uh yeah archaeological almost about that that's interesting because it reminds me of a lot of daydreaming i had when i started listening to jazz and i fell in love with this music style that I was you know getting a CD uh, before that I was getting vinyls because I'm I'm 375 years old so, uh, <laughs> well and, you're, you're up to date on vinyl now and I was daydreaming looking at the day so oh on 27th of November in 1959 you know and I was imagining these five people you know, leaving their homes and it's very cold you know, in New York mm. and reaching the studio and everyone is complaining because it's the weather is miserable. And then one, you know, the day before got a, a parking fine, you know, and yeah. then you listen to the music and you think, gosh, you know, they were normal people that all of a sudden were able to do some magic and Mm. And I always try to imagine the normality of of the day, you know, to catch a little bit of also that vibe, and and also remind me what you said um, uh, about a a historian that I I like. I always listen to his podcast. He's an Italian historian uh, specialized in middle age and once someone asked him if you could 
traveling time. Who would you like to meet? And he said, you will be surprised because I, I could pick, you know, uh, Charles the, the Great or uh, Dante Alighieri, you know, in mm -hmm. Florence. But I would like to speak to a farmer in the 13th century. Just and a normal, just normal person. And, and spend a day with them. I yeah. would love to see, because we know uh, bits and pieces of those people, but we don't know anything about, you know, normal people. And he said, I've, I've been agonizing, agonizing all my life to just try to understand, you know, where they were going shopping, how, what, what they were eating for breakfast. I would love, you know, to have breakfast with them, you know, with the family yeah. and the kids and... So it's a bit similar, you know, you, you want to get in contact with uh, not only the music, but also the person and, and dig uh, and imagining, you know, the person doing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. On that specific day, at that specific time, on that specific take <laughs> exactly. of that tune, you know, exactly yeah. what happened right in those five minutes, you know. And since, you know, you, you've done a lot of that, uh, what do you expect to bring home when you transcribe? So, of course, you said, I love it. I love the act of transcribing, but you also do it thinking of what you will benefit from it. Yeah, um, which, which can be a lot of things. I mean, I think what... First of all, what I don't really do, and I think what a lot of people do do, is uh, is take out lines, you know, and deconstruct them and take them through 12 keys and, um, you know, all, all of that kind of standard practice that, that, that is probably <laughs> probably a very good idea. And I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, you know, tell someone not to do that at all. For me, it's much more about uh, the the ideas on the page and sort of seeing okay these the this is what they were thinking you know in a, in a conceptual sense this is this is how their phrasing works out you know that they're, they're accenting phrases that start towards the end of a line or cross over from a b from an a section into a b section and things like that yeah. um and I, I notice i think a lot of that stuff does get in your playing if you if you transcribe something and play through it a few times you, I was you going... don't have to get to the to every single note, you know, and deconstruct everything. Um, particularly with some pianistic things, I think. You know, I was going to chords. to provoke you and say, but are you really sure that you are not influenced by what you transcribe? Because I think, you know, when you spend few hours on, you know, uh, twenty seconds of music. Mm. I think your brain is speaking a lot more than what we think, you know, and eventually, sure. yeah. maybe not in the immediate future, but eventually within, I don't know, six months times, uh, time, uh, you, you will reprocess that information and it will come out, maybe triggered by, this is what I think, and this is what I can hear when I listen to myself playing uh, sometimes I can tell you exactly 
what is the the origin of that line that I played, and it's very different. Right. Maybe it's very different from the original, but you know, it's my mind going through a process of like like a food processor, right? You put yeah. ingredient and then. And then it's there, you put it in the freezer, and then when you need it, you take it out mm. and use it. But you, mm. you, you said it yourself, that it's, it's coming into your playing anyway. Yeah, I think, uh, I think you, can, you can see that in, in very obvious ways and probably very subtle ways. Um, like, like I was saying, block chords is, is, is a very, very sort of uh, definable thing, you know. The way that Red Garland plays block chords is is slightly different to the way that McCoy Tyner does a, a similar sound, you know, makes a similar sound compared to Armand Jamal or, or Bill Evans or, or anyone else. And and you can you can kind of quantify that, you know, you can actually describe exactly how they're different in intervals and things. Um, so those sorts of things I think can just just to see, okay, that's 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 another sound, you know, that works doing it that way. And yeah. you don't need to necessarily practice that all that much. It's just, for example, Red Garland plays with an octave and a fifth in the middle. McCoy Tyner plays, tends to play with an octave and a sixth in the middle. It's just useful stuff to know, you know. But then I think in, in much more um, subtle ways, you know, just, just certain ways of phrasing things or accenting certain places in a, in a scale and things, you know, that, that I'm sure gets into your playing without without it being practiced incessantly yeah absolutely absolutely and to me it's also you know trying to to discover a little bit more to just uncover the surface of the magic that is in music uh, so I'm I'm not a pianist. I just play amatorially. I have studied many years when I when I was a kid, and then I I switched to saxophone. But uh, one thing that always struck me is that you can hear Keith Jarrett, Herbie Hancock, Red Meldau, you name it, playing on the same piano, playing the same tune, and it will be a totally different sound but even more you can listen to classical pianists playing on the same piano the same piece of music which means exactly the same notes yeah and you get a totally different experience so yeah. sometimes the transcription to me is like you know digging just one meter of the 2,000 kilometers of magic, but just one meter mm. and try to understand why it sounds different. So whether it's a technical thing like a fingering on the piano or on the saxophone, I don't know, a particular position of the tongue, you know, in the mouth. And not that I want to exactly know and come up with a with like a recipe that that would be silly to do and, and probably impossible and absolutely impossible it would lead you to a big fail 
epic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I like trying to discover because I think it's a way for me to to work towards freedom and add a few colors into my palette so that then I can change maybe the color because I know that I can get to that color if I do things which is a different way to study you know the the instrument and to study the technique. So you learn by something that has been processed by others and you filter through your personality. And sometimes you are also wrong. Sometimes I think that the player was doing something and I try and it doesn't work. But then I do something else that probably that player wasn't doing and I get closer. So it's just a research thing. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? You'll you'll never you'll never leave yourself behind, you know. Even even you playing playing, uh, you know, Hank Mobley, is there's still a bit of you in there, and and there always will be a bit of you in there. Of you course, know, you, you actually can't get there, and and that's a good thing. You know? Of course, everything goes through this filter. Yeah, and unless your goal is, I want to just recreate this as as perfectly as possible. Yeah, which I guess could be but it's, it's kind of you know a, a very non-musical way of looking at things um you know everything kind of no matter how hard you try everything will come out sounding yeah. like yourself eventually i think yeah unless you deliberately want to copy someone but usually it doesn't end well even there because every time you yeah. you think now I'm going to play like that. Uh, you lose the point of this beautiful genre, isn't it? Which is exactly. also, which yeah. is also interacting with the environment around you, whether it's musicians or if you play alone, it's just a room. You know, and mm. the mo the momentum of your soul, you know, in the act of playing. So. And I think I think the interesting thing about that as well is that that can be very different depending on who you're transcribing. I, I would say, I would say, Fred, someone like Fred Hirsch is is very sort of transcribable. Like everything, everything's quite neat. Yeah. And it's it's uh, you know he's got different voices and things, and you can kind of write those out. And when you play it, it sounds a little bit like Fred Hirsch. You know, you're sort of close. Whereas someone like Duke Ellington. It could be the most perfect transcription, but if you if you play it, it doesn't sound like Duke Ellington. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's 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 some other stuff going on there, just just in the way he articulates notes and his uh, his way of playing dynamics and things. It's it's incredibly difficult to 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 get anywhere close. You know, even playing the right notes, right rhythms, everything sort of technically yeah. correct. You know, or um, I would... which I find really interesting yeah. that that some of those are. are a lot lot more recreatable than others yeah and generally those are the ones that i like to transcribe <laughs> because you can you can get somewhere close you know There's less frustration yeah 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 that's interesting um so just to keep going i would be interested to know uh how do you um 
choose the solos that you are going to transcribe? Is there a particular reason or is just something that you know catches your attention and boom, you start a transcription? Well, I think I have to like it, first of all, you know, no matter how how um, no matter how popular it may be or 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 even technically interesting it may be if, if I don't like it I just I just don't want to do it you know it's, I, I only really want to transcribe music that I like as I was saying some some things are a lot more transcribable than others so there, there's a there's a few piano players uh someone like Andrew Hill for example I, I like his music uh, I don't think I've ever transcribed any of it actually because it's it's just so everything's so um sort of vague rhythmically and it just just wouldn't come across well on the page you know yeah um ultimately it's it's things that that i'm interested in for for various reasons it may even be things that i'm interested in that i wouldn't necessarily listen to all that much but i'm just curious to see what what was going on there you know how how is this person thinking yeah i've i've noticed uh, you transcribe the majority of pianists of course um but have you done other instruments or is is it something that doesn't interest you a lot oh it's something that interests me a lot yeah it's um the only reason that i at least on on the youtube channel and you know outwardly i i only transcribe piano players it's just there's just too much um idiomatic stuff attached to other instruments you know like i've transcribed a lot of miles hmm. but i would never claim that they're perfect you know all, all of this stuff that comes with with playing a trumpet and um that, that's the thing with piano is you sort of play a note or you don't play it and there's not a lot in between whereas you know false fingerings and and um hammer-ons and things on guitars and all that stuff i'm just not and I, I know i'm not going to be perfect and some someone else really should do that someone who plays that instrument would, would do a much better job than me at least of getting the the real details i've transcribed a lot of other stuff a lot of other instruments just out of interest you know just to try and see what's going on but yeah i try and steer clear of <laughs> of uh yeah, you know, dumbing those down too much. Yeah, yeah, of course. I always quote um, an interview I read to Pat Metheny where he said, I think the question was about his lyricism and how lyrical he can be on the guitar. You know? uh, mm. And he said, he transcribed a lot of trumpeters and I, I get it. I think I, I, I dig it because trumpeters are very, very lyrical by the nature of the instrument that forces you to imagine the notes in your head. Otherwise, mm. you know, you, you can take a false note or something that is not exactly <laughs> what you wanted. Well, for example, on the piano, but even on the saxophone, we have one key for each note. And there is always the risk 
the the young player you know shuts down the ears and start playing with just the muscle memory you know of it while a, a trumpeter cannot really do it he has to sing the lines yeah that's true and that's true yeah and and i think also it tends to they often tend to be more interesting rhythmically yeah because it's, it's not an instrument that really lends itself to just playing 16th notes yeah. at lightning speed you know it kind yeah. of forces you into being more interesting almost. unless you are clifford brown or winter marsalis but yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. there's exceptions obviously uh but yeah the concept of of pat Mithini was also that he said for example he started transcribing a lot of chet baker and started playing on one single string the whole solo mm. so again forcing yourself to play your instrument as a different one uh, may open up different scenarios, different worlds that you wouldn't explore otherwise. Yeah, yeah, I think those sorts of limitations can be can be massively useful. I think that's a, in, in sort of jazz, uh, jazz education, even and, and people starting out playing jazz, that's that's often a problem is that you can do anything and you know even any instrument really is capable of doing so many things but actually you're much better off limiting yourself quite substantially you know and really trying to find something interesting within those parameters yeah. there was a bass player that i used to play with um who used to be a drummer quite quite a good drummer actually he was really you know he'd been playing for years and he became a bass player for some reason um and all the solos he took, he was just playing like, just triads really, you know, root and fifth and the odd third and maybe the odd seventh or something. But it was really good stuff. You know, it's like really interesting rhythmically and there was a logic to it. And in a way it's like, I, I'm, I'm, I was glad that he couldn't just run over the whole instrument, you know, and, and do all this clever stuff because the limitations made him a much, much more, more interesting and much more recognizable player. There weren't a lot of other bass players that I was playing with at the time who were doing that, you know, because they could do everything else. Yeah. So it's 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 that thing of having having so much ability that you don't even need to to um to show it. You know, I guess that's the ultimate is you get to the point where you really can do all that stuff, but you don't you don't need to, you know, and you don't that muscle memory doesn't kick in and you just fly off and you've given everything away in the first eight bars. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and, and that's a big point, you know, maybe we will discuss further this, but um, you don't want to become a copy of anyone. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there is all those resources available for us and sometimes we feel lost. And so we, we try to apply a very rational methodology to it, like you know decompose take one line you learn in 12 keys different speed and then you add a bit in front a bit at the end and you change the last note and blah 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 uh i'm with you i i've done a bit of that but i i don't believe it's uh it's the best way to profit from a transcription hmm. Uh, mostly when I understood that the notes are only 
a small a small part of the whole thing you know playing it yeah that it, that really should be um should be taught to everyone very very quickly i think because there's yeah, a huge I, bias for notes all <laughs> over the place i <laughs> tend to teach to my students that the transcription once is completed once you have learned all the notes whether you have memorized it or you have written down all the notes that's when your job starts mm. so transcribing to me is a preparation to a different task and i need to know the material i'm dealing with and then i start to work with it so for example if i transcribe a saxophone player for me <clears throat> would be where does the guy take breath yeah it's right. it's important to know as well probably for you would be where is the thumb you know passing it's on the third note of the scale it's on the fourth note what would be not necessarily the best fingering but what would be the fingering that was used there yeah yeah right and and so you you need to already have transcribed it all so a lot of people you know do transcription and once they got all the notes finished uh to to me actually the journey starts there that that's just preparing the luggage you know for mm. the journey to get the notes and then i start you know listening to vibrato to the attack of the notes dynamics accents articulation and all sort of things that have nothing to do with the notes do you do you learn the solo as well do you learn it off by heart uh some of them yes uh if i do if i prepare an episode for the podcast sometimes i don't have time to do it but yeah. there are you know quite a few solos that i can still play most of it uh and and this actually leads us to the next question which is um can you just talk to us uh, about your methodology and then maybe I will tell you a little bit of my methodology but uh, we are very interested in, in knowing what is your process you know from start to finish so from starting you know say, say I've got a, a recording I want to transcribe where do I go from there yeah is that, is, yeah um, well I actually, I actually like to listen to it a few times. You know, I don't, I don't sort of half listen to it once and go, yeah, that sounds good. I'll, I'll start working on that. I like to listen to it, you know, and really, really sit and do nothing else and listen to it and and try and get some sense of an overview of where this is going. You know, rather than sort of discovering everything bar by bar. Um, and then, and then I begin. You know, <laughs> and uh, and I try to. I try to sort of um, know know what the geography is, so know what section I'm working on, and and I, I always try and try and leave it. If I, if I stop transcribing and go and do something else, try and leave it on a section that is nice to come back to. You know, I don't try not to leave it on a huge cadenza that's going to take me two hours. Um, 
so I, I do everything I do everything on a laptop I, I don't sit by the piano um, I use transcribe the software and notate things and and basically try and do everything by ear as much as possible um, that that I, I'm aware is slightly different to how other people do things you know I, I, first of all I think a lot of people like to be at the piano or at the instrument and working thing, through things like that. Part part of that actually is uh, first of all, I'm sat there for hours. I want to be comfortable, but also I, I like that moment where you've you've got a section done. You've, you know, you spent two or three hours, and then you come over to the piano and see see how it sounds. You know, yeah. see how close you were. Um, and and also within sort of in a, in a more technical sense, I and again, this is I think this is slightly different to how a lot of people do things. I, I never really do things with intervals. I, I just don't hear intervals in the in the way that other people do as as a tool for working things out. So, you know, you know, I'm sure you've heard that thing of like you assign a song that you know to every interval. So a perfect fourth is softly, in, you know, and those kind of things. Um, that just doesn't work for me. I just don't hear things like that. It's the the context matters too much. You know, a perfect fourth between the root and the fourth sounds very different to a perfect fourth between the seventh and the flat nine in an altered scale, for example. You know, I just I just don't hear things that way. So I, I hear everything in relation to the root. So if, if there's a line, I'm hearing every note as, you know, the third of the scale going up to the fifth of the scale and how, how all of those relate to the root note. So I'd hear a fifth wanting to go up. So it, that to the root. it's a more con contextual, harmonical uh, pitch that you use. I guess so. I guess so. I don't have any anything like perfect pitch, you know. So I'm, I'm yeah. not doing things that way. Um, Welcome to the I, club. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't. I really don't mind. I'm happy to to not have perfect pitch. It's um. It can it can be a, a bit of a Blessing and a curse, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I have a a lateral question for you, but it's related to what you just said. Because, for example, I don't have perfect pitch, but through the years, I think I developed uh, what I call a perfect pitch for saxophone. So if I hear a saxophone playing, I can tell you exactly all the notes. But because mm. of the memory that I have of the saxophone playing that sound, is there anything similar on the piano? I, d I don't think there really is. Not not to not to the same extent. Um, I know, like guitarists, get very good at hearing a low E because they hear it every time they tune up, and you know, and and they hear that same. That the sound of an open string is slightly different to the sound of, of any exactly. other note, isn't it? I don't, I don't think there really is an equivalent on the piano because it's so equal. Um, I have, I have noticed over many years that I've, I'm, I really don't have perfect pitch, but I think I'm, I'm a little bit closer than I was. You know, <laughs> I'm like five percent closer. I, I, if if someone plays a note, and I, I know, particularly if it's in the low range of the piano, where I guess. The, the sort of timbre of the instrument changes more quickly. Uh, I, I might not know what note it is, but I know what note it isn't. You know, there's a couple, I know, I know it's not, that's not a D or an E, 
but it's somewhere around A flat or yeah. that sort of area, you know. Yeah. But no, I don't think there's really an equivalent in terms of the instrument giving you any clues in that way. So when you when Not you start the transcription, you said you don't use the piano. Do you use any reference to start? Uh, well, I have in in transcribe software. You can there's there's like a little uh, piano keyboard that ah, just okay. plays a tone so i've got a reference of like okay i know what key we're in yeah <laughs> for All a right. start and uh, I, can, I, I, I really try not to but i can check things there if i really yeah. need to i never use transcribe but i i forgot that there is a keyboard there yes um so like you know give me give me a point and i will lift the world you know the famous quote so give me a reference and i can transcribe everything is, is that what you do basically yeah i mean doesn't always go perfectly to plan but uh yeah that's that's the idea if if if, if someone tells me this note is a c you know you play a c and go that's the c yeah. then then i've got a reference and, and then in theory i can work out everything from there and this is nice because the other the other night i i had a gig which which is a particular gig I'm, I'm doing a cycle of um, concerts and conversation around specific composers or music styles from Italy uh, for the Italian community here at the Italian Museum here in Melbourne and the other night I did this uh, conversation concert uh, concertation I should call it <laughs> uh, on on Morricone, Ennio Morricone, the Italian film composer, and I had an audience of non-musicians, of course, and sometimes it's hard because you have to be careful not to go too technical, too theoretical, because they will start to, you know, get lost yeah. immediately. Yeah. But I showed them. Uh, how Morricone was able to change the weight of the notes, which is similar to what you said, that a fourth interval changes depending on the context. And so there is this piece by Morricone where the exact same melody is harmonized in two different ways. And every note, if it was a third, becomes a seventh. And Right. And and it's funny because the melody is very simple and the harmony is very simple too. But I think the the people in the end got it because when you contextualize it in, in that sense, you know, the G played in a E flat major seven chord has a particular sound, and then you play G but over A flat major seven chord, and it's a completely different world. Mm. even if if it's the same note and and you try to keep the chords quite close to where you played um so that's also interesting that the our ears can work out you know spaces and notes and intervals in a different way and can get the context and can get a different shade in the color of the node mm. that tells you oh mm. no that that's not that node mm, i like yeah it. and 
yeah, in short, my methodology, if I have the time to do it, I listen multiple times, you know, several times for a few days, just the track, possibly just the solo, if I want to transcribe just the solo. I used to copy on a tape, copy the solo like 10 times in a row now. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Remember, I come from the Jurassic. I, I still <laughs> had the tapes and, and I had a double deck, you know, tape recorder. So I was putting one tape and, and an empty one and just copied the solo 10 times. Mm. And then in the car, I had a, a cassette player. So I was listening to to just the solo. Now I do it sometimes with logic and then I put the track on my phone, you know, and it's just solo 10 times and, and I start to sing back. So again, if I have the time, I first learn to sing it and I'm a horrible singer, but I don't care. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's irrelevant. Yeah. That, that's it's, totally it's relevant, it, but I'm, I'm, you know, internalize the sound. Yeah. Of it. And that helped me even before I start thinking what the notes would be. It does help me first, for example, if it's a woodwind player or a brass player, first to align my breathing with it. So with piano and guitar, it gets difficult sometimes. If you play a line across like eight bars at mm. 90 BPM, yeah, I would die. <laughs> so yeah. I yeah. have to fill in, you know, uh, uh, breath somewhere. But it helps me also in the rhythm, in getting the rhythm, because I know exactly that that phrase will take one and a half bar. Even if I don't think too much yet at this stage, whether it's a fifth tuplet or a crotchet triplet, across the bar, uh, I know that that period, which is one unit in my brain, occupies that amount of space. And that helps me a lot to understand, more or less. You know, it's like having a draft hmm. of, of the rhythm texture of, of the solo. And then I start... So, so you're sort of working phrase by phrase and knowing the uh, whole phrase and then working out the whole phrase rather than just sort of bar by bar going through. Yeah. Yeah. But again, time permitting, I learned the whole solo. So I know phrase by phrase because I've, I have learned the whole thing. Mm. And so I know exactly what is the next phrase and where it starts and where it finishes. And then I start considering, oh, yeah, this is bar four and it ends in, in the middle of bar six. And I start like putting some bubbles, you know, of. And then I start writing it or, or maybe before I, I start playing it. And that process is usually very quick if I know how to sing it back. Um, if I know it by heart and I mm -hmm. can sing it even without the track playing, uh, that is the best uh, situation where I could find myself.
if I yeah. if I can sing it from scratch, like out of the blue, I can start singing. Uh, just playing on the instrument takes me a short time because I already know it. Mm. And See, I, I think if if you have that approach, I think that would really get inside your own playing, then, wouldn't it? Because you're really internalizing everything about the solo. You know, you can play it, you can sing it, you can run through it in your head. You know, you just you know the whole thing. So if that's your methodology, you 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 could go through and sort of take things through twelve keys and superimpose phrases on other changes and things like that. But actually, there's a lot getting in your playing, I would think. Yeah. Just by just by knowing it that well, you know, knowing it inside out. It would take me a little bit more to transpose, for example, because remember what I learn is that exact sound. Yeah. So I yeah. learn, I don't know, uh, the Mixolydian scale on the tenor sax, and I know exactly that that is the sound of that. Now, and then you ask me to transpose that phrase into B major, and I could be wrong, you know. It's I'm not that immediate in transposing everything because it's something that I haven't done like crazy. Like I remember once Michael Brecker, uh, I went to a workshop in Italy and he was a monster. He I'd never seen anyone as quick as him. He was mm. taking any line. We were building lines on the blackboard, random lines. And he was starting playing around the cycle at the light speed without any yeah. single mistake. But this is what he was doing all the times. And he developed his own strategies to do it. Uh, I remember he explained he goes by subdividing the octave into smaller intervals. So he first transposed it to the triton. Right. And then... Okay. And then he goes by my, uh, major thirds. Yeah. And then minor oh, I thirds. I see. So he's sort of splitting, splitting the octave in half. Yeah. And then thirds. And, yeah. And yeah, then... That's, yeah, not the most obvious way to do it, but I guess it ticks all the boxes and eventually. he was so quick, Rowan, was so quick that... Mm. Oh, my God. It, it, it was, like, unbelievable. Unbelievable. But I, I never went into it. First, because I'm lazy. <laughs> And yeah. <laughs> after a while that I'm doing, I found it boring. But I think at the back of my brain, there is, uh, I don't believe that that strategy suits me very well. So I prefer to expand uh, some, uh, a bit more the awareness of a particular sound and then try to use it um after i i process it in a little bit more creative way so reacting for example to something that you would play in the moment mm -hmm. and i can relate what you do to a particular line that sits in a file somewhere in the brain and i just grab it and use it in context uh and yeah that's it fundamentally mm. it's funny because i 
I'm always telling students, especially like, you know, the, the, I, the ideal is you, you get completely fluent in 12 keys and that would be, that would be great. But actually in reality, no, nobody is, you know, but, but maybe there is the odd person like Michael Brecker that uh, really is or, at least close to it. Or Chris you know, Potter. Just, just as good in B as, uh, or Chris yeah. Potter, yeah. Just as, as good in B major as B flat. And did you, you know, see that? I guess eventually you stop. It, it stops being relevant. Yeah, you know, if you're thinking in the right way, it, it just doesn't matter what key you're in anymore. Yeah. Did you see that um, transcription of Chris Potter playing all the things you are? Yeah, yeah, I've seen. That. Yeah, which is like 12 minutes, and at a certain point, he doubles the time and goes up a semitone, and mm. nothing changes. Nothing in mm. his playing. He's fluent as before. Yeah, and upper semitone is quite challenging for for a tenor player because it becomes you know five sharps and all sort of keys that are you know not super comfortable just because you don't play uh, them most of the time, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. nothing changes in in him. But again, there's not magic in that, and he admits that he's a practiceaholic. He He said, if, if I don't practice seven hours a day, my body feels sick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <do> that. <laughs> yeah. So. But there's, there's a couple of things on that, which is, I mean, may, maybe, maybe this is looking at it in, in a certain way because I'm lazy as well and I don't want to sit for seven hours playing everything in 12 keys. But in a way, I, I, I don't want to play the same in every key. Yeah. You know, I want to feel comfortable in every key, but I don't want everything I do to just translate perfectly to every key. Um, because it, like we said earlier, those limitations can be quite useful in, in, in the right place, yeah. you know. And also they, they, they sound different. You know, there's, there's a reason that Bill Evans uh, plays lots of things in A and E and, and Coltrane, you know, the, the early Coltrane stuff, uh, Mr. Day and Equinox and Uh, my favorite things, they're all in sharp keys. Yeah. And if, if you shift it a semitone, all the magic's gone. Yeah. You just, it's, it's, it's like, fine, it all works, but it, there's something about those keys, you know? So I think it's, like I said, it's, you, you want to get comfortable in all 12 keys, but also I, I kind of don't want to treat them as all the same thing. You know, yeah. they, they do have very particular sounds that are, are One semitone difference can can make all the difference in the world, really, to the overall sound of of the music as a whole. You know, absolutely. Uh, one question I, I would like to ask you is, uh, yeah, watching your transcriptions, um, you do a great great work on the left hand of piano players, so. How do you do that? What what is your strategy with that particular thing? Because to me, it's still very difficult. I wouldn't be too comfortable in doing a whole transcription both hands. Mm. Uh, I'm pretty sure I will miss a few things in the left hand. So I'm very <laughs> jealous first but also interested in knowing how you do it well i think uh first of all it's that is the most difficult thing to me still 
it's left hand, you know, and, and it, it certainly was when I was starting out. I, I got to a point where I could get a reasonable transcription of the right hand, and I still really couldn't get close in the left hand, you know, so it's taken me a very long time. Um, and, and sometimes if, if the transcription is really, you know, someone's playing right hand single note lines and left hand voicings and they're very separate things, sometimes I actually transcribe them separately. I'll just do all the right hand or, you know, a chorus of right hand and then go back and do the left hand underneath it, uh, just to sort of get in the zone of, of what that hand is doing. I think a huge amount of it is knowing the player, first of all. So I've transcribed a lot of Bill Evans, partly because I really like Bill Evans and he's very transcribable and all the stuff we talked about. But I, I know what he's going to do with his left hand. I, I've transcribed so much that I can hear a certain voicing and I know, okay, it's that, it's uh, third, seventh, ninth or something, you know, and I know where he's going to go. So as soon as I start transcribing someone I don't know as well, it, it does become a lot more difficult. I think in in that particular thing, I think in left-hand voicings, it really comes down to I'm hearing the, the sound of the voicing as a whole much more. So I might not hear four individual notes, but I can hear it's like, okay, there's a 13th in there. The seventh and the third are probably there because they're almost always there. So I won't assume that they're there, but I'll check that they're there and sort of half believe that they're there already, you know, and just, just check that. And then maybe I can hear a flat nine after a few listens. And, you know, it's, it's much more about the, the sort of experience of hearing those voicings and those intervals on chords. Uh, those extensions rather on chords than it is about hearing the lowest note and then hearing yeah. the next note up, you know, and those are the sort of things that I do have to check much more. And uh, I go, what I do is I go through each transcription, play it through on the piano, and then I've got like a million pieces of paper kicking around that have bar numbers written on, which are the bars to check. And all the time I'm writing LH left hand, just all the time, you know, that's, that's always the stuff to check. Um, but I think it's, yeah, a lot of it is knowing the player and also just experience of knowing voicings. If I hear a fourth voicing, I'll know, okay, instantly that's a load of stacked up perfect fourths, you know, yeah. and then you've got a, you've got a way in, you know, it's, it's not just a list of random notes anymore. It's, yeah. it's, you're expecting certain things um, and practice, obviously, like all these things, it's, it's a lot of practice, but um, yeah, I, I definitely treat left hand voicings in a slightly different way to how I treat other things, yeah, you know, and basically spend a lot more time on them. Do you um, immediately write it down or you wait? I don't know. When, when do you write it down if you write it down? I, I write it down as I work it out. Yeah, which, okay. which I'm not sure is the best thing to do. I mean, I've in the past I have I, I remember I, I had to go back home where I grew up for some reason a few years ago and I, I didn't really have anything there. Um, I just had like this this MIDI keyboard and just no anything to do with it. So I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just transcribe some solos and just learn them off by heart. And it's a very, very different way of doing it. And I think possibly a better way actually in the long run, you know, uh, but it's, it's not what I do. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, no, what, what I actually do in reality is I, I write it down as soon as I work it out and, uh, you know, go back and correct things and tidy things up. But it's it's going 
on the page immediately yeah it's not it's not in my i'm not getting anything off my heart at all yeah to me that the real issue is is time you know mm. i ideally i would learn and memorize as i said you know memorize everything by singing um but sometimes you know time family work and everything else you know i just have the time to write it down as i do it and then that's it but we have to accept it <laughs> yeah yeah and it's not uh that doesn't you know invalidate it at all it's no, just no, no, an no. idea of, of the world you would probably want to internalize it all and things and yeah but uh reality gets in the way yeah sure and uh now we, we already talked about this but probably uh we can if we want expand if you want expand a little bit more uh do you practice your transcriptions and if yes do you have a process or you just leave it yeah i don't really practice them i don't actually play them all that much yeah. um I, yeah, I, I I play them through and check them, and often I might not play it again for for another six months, you know. <laughs> uh, which again, I'm not really telling anyone to do that at all. But uh, I, I, at least at this point now, what I get out of them, I try and sort of learn in the moment. And and if they're particularly interesting things, sometimes I'll take things out. Uh, there was this thing that that uh, McCoy Tyner did on Star Eyes, mm. where he, he used a certain a certain voicing, fourth voicing from the seventh of a dominant chord. And I just never heard anyone do that before. And it, it, it didn't make sense to me, theoretically. It didn't, I didn't understand why that sound, sounded good, but it sounded really good. You know, and I took that out and sort of took that idea and, and practiced that. But I, I, I definitely don't, I, I I couldn't play all the transcriptions perfectly, you know, or probably any of them perfectly. You mm. know, I'd have to sit down with them for a long time, and I I just don't do that. I just uh, again I I spend too much time on other things, really. Yeah. So, even the next question, I think we have already elaborated a little bit, and it is how do you incorporate ideas into your playing? Uh, and you said that you know you are not deconstructing and then practice methodology methodologically and religiously you know each line in 12 keys but do you want to add something to it so i'm pretty sure that as as we said at the beginning that it's impossible for us to to rest neutral to it mm. as you know if i listen to the radio or you know the the songs that my kids uh love to listen on the radio i get something and eventually would could come out you know maybe in a different form as a different entity but there will be a trace of everything uh, this mm. is this is what I believe, but I'm I'm interested in understanding your point of view. Well, well, I agree with that 
definitely. I think uh, in 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 short, I think the the things that the things that I take out of the solos and 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 everything that I transcribe, it's it's things that I don't need to go back in the so- and look at the solo to to understand. You know, so so for example. Actually, this wasn't one of mine. Uh, I, I think I was just watching someone else's video of uh, Brad Meldow. But I, I noticed that he he was deliberately uh, phrasing things against the form. So when an A section starts and it's eight bars, he wasn't playing eight bars through that or even four and four. He was playing sort of across the form, starting a phrase on the last bar of the form or, you know, just starting and ending in places that, that are sort of in conflict to that. So that's just an idea. You know, you don't really need to go back at the transcription and, and look at how all those things happen. It's just like, oh, okay, maybe that's something that's worth looking into, you know. So you look um, you look basically at the macros. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. At that the general idea that could be you could you could sum up that idea in a sentence. Yeah. You know? Like uh, but, but I'll, I'll take that out. Use uh majority of third intervals or yeah what whatever whatever tool you want to use that that's good that's that's great it's it's very there was there was one um there was one actually it was sonny rollins solo on if ever i would leave you Mm -hmm. uh with jim hall and and uh can't remember who else actually but it's it's a great recording and i transcribed that a few years ago and and Basically, what I worked out, what he was doing rhythmically, he, he never plays a bar of eight quavers. And it's a sort of reductive, it, to me, it seemed like a reductive approach. Like you take an eight quaver line and take a couple of notes out and, and suddenly it's much more interesting rhythmically and it's it's much more broken up and less predictable. And, and that, that I found, I really got obsessed with that yeah. you know, for a long time of practicing things in that way and trying to avoid eight quavers at least at least until a couple of choruses into the solo it's all all that sort of stuff or yeah. or even just the, the way that one phrase follows the next you know why why does why do those two phrases work together is it because they're they're complementing each other by being similar or by being different or is one an extension of the other or, or is one playing the same thing but anticipating it slightly or you know why why do those things work and it's yeah it's all like you said it's all the macro stuff really, all the yeah uh, ideas. i mean you mentioned one of the best architect in in jazz you know sonny rollins is always mm. analyzable to the point where you get to the core of the solo and sometimes one solo from sonny rollins is one idea one yeah. single idea or sometimes one interval right like one small small concept and he's able to build without make you noticing unless you study it and analyze it but examples are like what is this thing called love with the uh, max roach and clifford brown and the melody it's a descending minor third and his whole solo is built on a descending minor third but you yeah. don't notice until you transcribe it and that's you know his greatness or you know the famous saint thomas which starts tedo 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 oh, yeah. 
And those two notes, G and C, are the first two notes of the melody, just inverted. Ta-da, mm. todo, right? So Sonny is, is fantastic on those, taking a very even silly, you know, idea and make the most luxurious, you know, building. Yeah, using. yeah, exactly. There's, there's that one on Without a Song. Yep. Uh, where he, he just keeps playing playing the root. It's yep. an E flat and, and every phrase just keeps ending on E flat. And then when he gets to the B section, it really takes off and yep. you know it's given himself somewhere to go. And I love that. I love that uh, that the the methodology there is so clear. You know, it's not some complicated chord substitution where he's accenting no, but, something else. It's but at you the can, same you can like describe it in a sentence, you know. But at the same time, if you try to do it, it's so difficult. Yes, yeah. you, yeah. you <laughs> I, I discovered that. You have to have such a control on the instrument and on your phrasing, on your, you know, harmonic devices that you use. And he's always in control and his time is always moving, you know, from uh, staying ahead of the beat and then all of a sudden behind and then above the beat. It, it's It's so frustrating to listen to how well he's able to you know develop one small simple concept like yeah. a, like an interval there is also the other recording called uh, sony on impulse um, oh, yeah. and he does something similar to what you described before but he plays a, a line and then cuts off the resolution. So it's like someone uh, like saying something, a sentence, without getting to the... And, and you yeah. always are left with... And he plays like that. And I tried. I tried to, you know... Uh, to play, oh, let, let's play, you know, a song, uh, and I try. And it's so difficult, again, it's so difficult, because you have to force yourself to be in a in a place where you are not comfortable, right? To do something yeah. wrong, yeah. you know, the things that we are not teaching, right? Yeah. No, no, you have to resolve, yeah. you know, you have to create the tension and then release the tension. Well, he's creating the tension and then... And then that's it. Yeah. I've tried exactly the same thing. That that same. I remember thinking, that's that's a really interesting idea. You know, just just leave things hanging. Just yeah. play play a line and just take your hand off the piano halfway through. Is it? I don't know why that's so hard to do, but it's it's really it's like swimming against the tide. You know, maybe because we practice for hours. You know, getting a, a good resolution. And for years we, we practice that, and also the music that we listen. Ninety nine percent of the music that we listen is built around that concept. You know, any yeah. any tension that you create need to be resolved in a mm. way. So when you go against it, it's it's really woo. Bit like you know Lenny Tristano or Likonitz or Marsh that they were trying to end the phrase where you don't suppose to end the phrase. Mm. Uh, and that creates like a broken mirror. You know, when you still see the picture, but it's all... Uh, but it also gives you somewhere to go. 
doesn't it? It's, Absolutely, it's, it's, and you're building tension in, again in a really sort of macro sense. It's you've 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 left so much on the table then that you can come back and and repeat things, and you haven't just given away everything straight away. And I think, I think most... that that's uh, that that's that sort of idea of um, which I've, I've probably taken from Sonny Rollins more than anyone else actually. Again, in in an overall way of thinking about about constructing a solo is I, I like to think that. At any point, you could you could stop. You could just you could just stop halfway through a bar, on you know bar seven of the third chorus, and and someone could say, "What what are you doing? What's the idea right now? What are you in the process of doing?" And I feel like there should be a good answer to that. It shouldn't just be, "I'm just you know playing through the changes." Yeah. You know, there should be some sort of in in like one bullet point. There should be, "I'm I'm working with uh, the interval of a third." You know, or or uh, playing lots of short phrases, or whatever it is. You know, there's a million things that could be rhythmically or that's or right, harmonically, or even on the instrument, or you know. But there should be something. You know, there should be something that you can answer that question with. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I, I know I've talked to people about that, and I know people disagree with that. You know, that it sh it can be it can be just happening, and you just play and let things go where they want to go. But I, I like that sort of very organised. Yeah. Um, very structured, very kind of conscious way of playing. You know, you're not and, just your fingers go. And I like that. Once again, we we haven't talked at all about notes. Yeah, because yeah. notes are very marginal. You know, in understanding this music. Mm. And. Sometimes it's very sad to see that a lot of people spend a lot of time, you know, trying to get. We can see also on, on YouTube sometimes there are people putting numbers above each note, like if I can, like decipher a code that give me a, a password, you know, to a better playing. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't get it. I don't get it because I I might understand that there is the sharp nine on a dominant chord, but if I don't know how it sounds in that specific moment, I don't care. I don't get it, and, and then I'm stuck because I don't know what to do with that information because it's just a piece of information which is very sterile. I can write you know a Sony Rollins solo as numbers. Here, but then what do I do? You know, yeah. What? Yeah, exactly. It's really useless. So this is when, for me, theory, and I was a very theoretical person in the past, two hundred years ago. Uh, but thanks God, I, I I got to the point where I said theory is a consequence of a sonic issue. So yeah. we have created rules and theory of music to define sound, which is otherwise, you know, untouchable. Is you you can't say this is a square. It, who knows? <laughs> mm. So mm. we define a set of rules to understand and and also to share a language. You know, to share knowledge. But then when we play, we need to 
deal with sound and and that's it to me this yeah. is my well, well also there's, there's so much of theory that doesn't actually really work you know it's, it's really it's not a perfect system it works, there, there are big it, holes in it it works to sell books though <laughs> yeah for a lot yeah. of people you know the titling learn this set of scales and you will sound like a pro what mm. Mm. How does that work? Let me try. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, that is great. And now, just to finish and relax a little bit uh, the tension. So we have the resolution here of the episode. I oh, have, we are resolving. Sorry. Yeah. I have two... <laughs> not uh, play with the form. <laughs> two silly questions. And please don't be upset with me. <clears throat> But I have to ask it because it started, as I said, like a game, and I I I love to keep doing it. The first silly question is: Who was the most difficult player you transcribed? Hmm, that's that's a good one. Uh, there's probably a, a couple of answers to that. Um, if I had to say one. Probably Armour Jamal, huh. in, in certain places, at least. Um, he has incredible technique, like ridiculous technique yeah. that he doesn't really use yeah. very often. Um, he has this way of, he can get his left hand so, so quiet compared to his right hand, you know, and it sounds like two different instruments. I'm sure maybe the way it's mic'd up helps, but um, he can do all that, and, and he... He does things like on the Pershing recordings, he does things where he sort of drifts out of time with the rhythm section and then comes back in again. And like, how do you, how do you write that down, you know, yeah. <laughs> without yeah. just writing a full sentence, drift out of time. Um, so rhythmically, he, I found him very, very difficult. Um, just just as, a, as an aside to that, uh, Herbie Hancock, I find very odd in a, a, lot, a lot of places that he'll play things and it doesn't seem to like I can't work out how he played that physically with in terms of fingering and things. It just it doesn't seem to add up. You know, most people play lines that fit really nicely on the yeah. piano. And Herbie Hancock, he's just he you have to actually write on the fingerings sometimes and work out okay, if you if you do this that kind of feels wrong, it will get you to, to the position where you can play this and it's very, very odd. I haven't found that with a lot of other people. Interesting. Um Andrew Hill as well, like I said earlier, it's yeah. just because he's all over the place rhythmically. Um, yeah. But yeah, I tend to stick to people that don't, you know, those problems don't don't come up as much. The thing that you said about uh, Marjamal, you know, incredible technique, barely used. Uh, do you know that legend, urban legend, saying that once Count Basie was walking into... Uh, a building where several recording studios uh, were placed and he walks up the stairs and start hearing some incredible stride piano going on. So he start chasing the sound because he says, wow, this, this, who's that player, you know, playing so well? And finally get to the room, opens the door and there is Thelonious Monk sitting at the piano you know stopping and they look yeah. 
each other and monks said don't tell anyone and Kambodhi says I won't <laughs> so it's it's of I believe it's it's a legend never happened but it can demonstrate a lot you know? yeah I, I could believe it I could believe it to some extent you yeah. know I'm sure he I'm sure he wasn't just playing the only way he knew how to play. Yeah, of course. You know, and he's so idiomatically monk, you know, he's yeah. so himself. Um, I don't know, like I often think I would, I would love to hear how, how people played when, before, before they were really known, you know, how was monk playing when he was like 18 yeah. or how was McCoy Tyner? Cause he seemed to come out like fully formed when he was like 16 or something. He, he, had this whole sound and the whole system worked out. And I'd love to hear what he sounded like a yeah. few years before. Yeah, he must have got there via something, you know. That that's that's yeah, that's a good point. And all right, are you ready for the last one? God, <laughs> which transcription you've done is your favorite? If you have to save one. <laughs> Hmm, that's an interesting one. Um, I know it's it's like you know those questions. Who's your favorite player? And I hate those questions, but sorry, mm. I have to do it. <laughs> I think probably the the one that immediately comes to mind is "I Love Music," Ahmad Jamal, because it's possibly the most difficult thing I've transcribed. It's because it's just chaos, you know, for like seven minutes, yeah. um, and it's just all over the place and. I, I kind of put it off for so long. I kind of wanted to transcribe it. And it's very popular. People ask about that a lot. Uh, and eventually, one weekend, I just I just did nothing else. You know, <laughs> just like completely immersed myself in it. So probably that. Although I think probably the... I think the, all of the Bill Evans stuff is, is really what I'm best at because I've transcribed him more than anyone else. So as a, as a, as a resource... That's, that's probably about the most useful, you know, and the most, then nothing's ever a hundred percent, but I think they're, they're as close as, as I can get. Yeah. You know? All right. And that's, that's the end of this very, very informative session. Uh, today we had the pleasure of uh, talking to Rowan Hudson uh, great pianist, composer, and transcriber. I would say that that's a new, a new figure in music. Transcriber. Um, and he's heading off to Canada soon, so we wish you all the best of luck uh, Thank you. to Canada and get in contact with the people that uh, also have been guests on this podcast and uh, I'm pretty sure you will enjoy Toronto as a, as a lovely city and I thank you so much for your generosity and availability I'm pretty sure our listeners uh, will appreciate a lot your insight and your knowledge on the art of transcription so thanks a lot and goodbye no problem thanks for having me Thank you.